Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Uh, The church in its various institutional forms is in the midst of a sexual crisis. Both married preachers or celibate priests, supposedly, they're clearly not keeping their vows. Maybe the most highly publicized is the Roman Catholic Church that some 16,000 victims of some 3,700 clergy that have been involved in sexual abuse. But the Protestant churches then at the same time there's been an uncovering. Strange thing about the Catholic Church, there's been a kind of organized cover-up but there's also an, uh, an organized uncovering so we can name the numbers. But in Protestant churches, it's much harder to actually clarify. But in 2016, uh, 2017, a man named Wade Mullen wrote his PhD. And just for that year, he, in the United States, found 192 instances in a one-year period where a leader of an influential church, a larger church, was charged with sexual crimes. And this could have been rape, molestation. The Houston Chronicle and San Antonio newspapers ran an article on the Southern Baptists that report over a 20-year period that they've had dozens of clergy that have committed sexual crimes. Some 700 victims. A grandson of Billy Graham, Boz Chavigian, actually, he was a former Florida assistant state attorney who prosecutes these crimes. And then he's actually started an organization. Uh, says that it's the most underreported crime in the country. We know that they've done statistics that one in 10 young Protestants have left the church over abuse. 10% of Protestant churchgoers under 35 have left church because they felt sexual misconduct was not taken seriously. And among Protestants under 35, 9% said they had stopped attending a former congregation because they personally had felt unsafe. We've had this in the Christian church, maybe the most famous case was up in Florescent, Missouri. The uh, young man sodomized some seven children in the youth group. He's now serving a 25 year sentence in prison. There's no simple answer as to why there may be this rampant abuse. Maybe the attempts you know, among Protestants and Roman Catholics to hide the scandal, maybe views of sex, maybe views of God, maybe just a misconstrued understanding of what sin is and salvation is. And I want to suggest that maybe part of the problem is the way that people think about human desire, human sexual desire, but just human desire. And there's a kind of misconstrued image of 
ultimate reality, human reality and the reality of God, that I think is playing into this crisis. And so in this section and Romans, at what is considered to be the heart of the New Testament, the most theologically developed place anyway, Paul brings together sexuality, desire, and the Trinity. And he's going to talk about, in verse 26 to 27, these deep groanings of human longing, but he's describing it as a direct communion and communication with the Holy Spirit. So look at chapter 8, verse 26 to 27, Romans. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And so the idea, the picture here, it's not that we just pray autonomously, but God, the Holy Spirit, prays in me and answers the call of the Father, drawing me through painful degrees into sonship. And there is a, a kind of reflexivity, a kind of desire a ceaseless outgoing and return of the desiring God. And as I welcome and receive this reflexivity, I find it's the Holy Spirit in Paul's description who interrupts my human monologue. You know, sometimes prayer is, seems impossible. But what is described here is actually, it is in our prayer that we are participating in God's communion, communication. And so, throughout chapter 8, Paul is depicting how desire wrongly channeled is deadly. Look at verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. There's still desire, but it's desire channeled in a different direction. So desire, gone bad, and then rightly channeled, is the substance of Paul's depiction of redemption. In chapter 7, verse 7, he says, it's desire that I did not know what it was to desire apart from the law. He's describing the fall of himself and human beings, a fall into a misdirected desire. And so for a variety of reasons, this economy of desire, a good side of it, once appreciated in the early church, we don't talk this way anymore. It's no longer accounted for very often in our depictions of salvation of God or what it means to be human. I think this is feeding into the crisis. The sexual crisis is a kind of desire crisis. But a common theme of the church fathers, and they're often looking at the Song of Solomon, 
is that the incorporation of the believer into the life of the Trinity through the Spirit is on the order of being incorporated into marriage through sex. Origen says, Origen's early church father, he says agape, and agape is the Greek word for love, simply is eros. Eros is erotic love, agape is the love of God. He says the one is the same as the other. Gregory of Nyssa says eros is agape, stretched out in longing toward the divine goal. That is, eros, given its proper goal, is longing for God. And the early church fathers freely talked of erotic desire, and this is depicted in the Song of Solomon, as being accounted for in our right understanding of God, and especially of the Holy Spirit. So just as the sexual bond makes of the two one flesh, so too the binding together in the spirit, it's a fulfillment and ordering of desire. As Dionysius, the Areopagite, described it, desire becomes an ontological force inherent to the divine life itself, an ecstatic capacity of God to go out and return, always carried outside of himself, whilst also remaining within himself. Desire is God's desire that is describing his life of love and his desiring incorporation of others into this life. Just as one is incorporated into the marriage relationship through the fulfillment of desire, so too the desire of God. You know, it's originating in God describes this self-transcendence, this going outside of the self in overflowing love. Gregory of Nyssa in his homilies on the Song of Songs, he describes, you know, it's describing a love relationship in that song. And Gregory just reads the kinsman, the man, well, that's Christ. And he's drawing his lover, his disciples, through a kind of reflected beauty in which desire is actually the power of the Spirit to draw us to God. He says the bride has dedicated herself to her kinsman and in her own form has taken on the beauty of the beloved. And so he describes Andrew, you know, is led to Christ, the Lamb, by the voice of John. But John is really reflecting who Christ is, the beauty of Christ. Nathaniel attracts Philip through that same allure. He compares it to the maidens in the song of Solomon. The kinsman's lover is perfect in her comeliness, and so too the maidens following after. This reflected glory, Gregory says, means the Holy Spirit. He says, if the Lord's words be taken account of, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Quoting Christ. That is the eroticism of sexual attraction in the song translates directly into the attraction of Christ. For it is obvious that where 
she is concerned, the word is pointing to this, that the soul through the upward journey she has completed has been exalted to the point where she is straining forward to the wonders of the Lord. That is, that desire is ultimately fulfilled in God. But for some reason, we've lost this imagery, the picture of the Trinity, uh, maybe the, especially the picture of the Holy Spirit, has become very esoteric and abstract. And it's presumed that God's inner life is closed off to us, that, oh, there's God and he does his thing and, and we don't know about that. And that what Paul means by the flesh in this misunderstood idea is, well, that's just the body. And what is lost in this understanding is the role of the Holy Spirit in bringing about things in the flesh. That is, the Holy Spirit pours out on all flesh. The Holy Spirit is always working in and through the flesh. That it's through the Spirit that Christ is conceived. It's through the Spirit that Christ is incarnate. It's through the Spirit that Christ is resurrected. It's through the Spirit that Christ is in flesh. And so too with us. Our tendency is to be disincarnate, to depart. But through the Holy Spirit, we can engage in the world, in our bodies, in the flesh. And that will be an encounter with God. And so in Romans 8, it is prayer groanings, inclusive of the depth of human desire. He's describing this depth of desire and the need to have communion with God through the Spirit. It's not the setting aside or the thwarting of desire, but the mediation of desire which opens into life in God. God's desiring love, his incorporating communion. He brings us into communion. That's the ground of human desire. That desire is greater than gender. Desire is greater than the erotic because it's divine. And in this use of the word desire, we've passed beyond gender. It's engendered bodily, that's true. But to limit it to that, and this is what Paul is describing in chapter 7, that, you know, it would be like saying, well, the, the thought is like the brain. You know, it just reduces to the physical brain. The embodied and enabling factor of thought and desire in, in all but the crudest reductionism, you can't say that's its explanation. And so Paul accounts for this tendency. That is, we do tend to reduce our desire to this law, he calls it, this gender. He says, a married woman is bound by law to her husband, so that her husband, representative of the law, constricts her desire. That is, you can just get caught up in that identity. That's everything. Now, Paul's not advocating celibacy. He's not advocating adultery, obviously. But he's describing how desire can be ordered and channeled so that one becomes a slave to it. In other words, this thing is dangerous, handled wrongly. I did not know desire apart from the law. 
That is, both things, desire and law, arise simultaneously as a kind of bondage, or they can. And one may be defined by their desires. And those who channel their desire into gender alone, that would be on the order of those who have made the law the ultimate point of mediating relationship to God. The law-bound are also the gender-bound in Paul's description. So that one is controlled by the relationship, you know, the woman married to the husband, and the husband is representative of the law. He's describing a kind of enslavement. To state it in different terms, one's love is constricted, can be constricted, by maleness and femaleness. And what we're aiming at, or what Paul's describing in chapter 8, is unconstricted love. Becoming united with Christ amounts to a breaking free of this constricting dynamic. Verse 4 of chapter 7, You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. He's describing our relationship to Christ in terms of marriage, that we pass out of one understanding into another. The love of God experienced in Christ is a release from the slavery to the law. He says, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code, verse 6. And so gender, and with it desire, is not an end in itself, but it's the medium of a relationship which transcends gender and erotic love. Desire, then, is more fundamental than gender. And the desiring Trinitarian God undoes, ambushes our attempts to fix and constrain gender in worldly terms. And so it's on this basis of a transcendent desire that Paul describes a communion with God through the direct intervention of the Spirit in prayer. Prayer, he says, is the expression of this eager longing. It is the occasion, you know, there is evoked and realized in verse 15 of chapter 8, you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In prayer, in realization, crying out, we come into this communion, this communication. And then all three persons of the Trinity are pictured as enabling this communion. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and co-heirs with Christ. There's all three persons of the Trinity. Provided, he says in 16 and 17, that we suffer with him. And so prayer is both the entry point, you know, where do we find the presence of God? In prayer. And it defines our entry point, but also defines then our communion with the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And so there is a realization of this Trinitarian agape love and it's not on the basis of a refusal of erotic or gendered desire, but it's the realization that gender, desire, and marriage are a human economy 
which is to be conjoined with the divine communion in which the spirit engenders sonship. So the divine communion open to humanity through the son Paul pictures as linking all of creation. Look at verse 22 to 23. Human desire, you know, all are, are drawn into this picture, this divine economy. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth up to the present time. This imagery of marriage, of birth, childbirth, he's picturing that desirous economy as the economy of God that we enter into. He says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Notice it's our bodies that are redeemed. Sex, gender, desire disconnected from this life in the spirit maybe it's on the order you know can you kind of have a disembodied agape love or you can have a prayer life you just it's a kind of monologue where you just you're kind of speaking out into the air into the empty void that is there's no reflexivity there's no return that there's no answering voice but the communication the groaning the desire here, it's answered by God. It's not left to itself. It describes life. You know, the, the empty describes life in the law. Relationship not to a person, but to a mechanical-like symbolic order. But here is a relationship to a person. And so Paul describes this Trinitarian communion that we're participating in the purposes of God in the deepest, he uses the phrase, eager longing, eager desire. It's not closed in on itself. Primordial desire left to itself becomes the law of sin and death. But this same primordial desire, open to Christian hope, is channeled beyond life in the flesh, you know, Paul's phrase, to adoption as children of God. And so as Gregory of Nyssa describes it, there is a passage into desire in which childishness is left behind as the disposition shaped by erotic love is joined to God. That is, we mature in this understanding or we're supposed to mature. And he uses the example of King David and of the Apostle Paul here in Romans 8. David says, for me, it is a good thing to cleave to God. You know the verse in Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. David says, uses the same word, we cleave unto God. Paul says, none shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, not life or death or what is present or what is future or anything else. That is, there is this fusion, this uh, merging and Gregory calls those who stifle this through a kind of misbegotten Puritanism. He, he calls it their concubines. They do not share in the divine spirit of kingship. It's out of fear rather than by brightly directed desire. 
that they refuse evil. By drawing near to the good, but through servile fear, he says, rather than through a bride's love. This person becomes a concubine rather than a queen because of her fear. And so Gregory, and Gregory is of the east, unlike Augustine, who is of the west, and Augustine denigrates sex and marriage. But Gregory says that we're all aware that these things are not a stranger to God's blessing. In fact, when he's writing this, it's actually called on virginity. But he's actually married when he's writing this. Gregory describes it as you can either be a pleasure lover or a God lover. And of course, what he's describing is the end point, the goal. The problem is not desire per se, but whether desire is rightly ordered or given its proper telos, its proper end as a God lover. It's not a matter of setting aside desire, but of channeling it and of even preserving it, interestingly. That is, one should not spend desire solely on the earthly, but channel it toward the heavenly. This is a, a quote from him. He's describing this. He says, imagine a stream flowing from a spring and dividing off into a number of accidental channels. As long as it proceeds so, it will be useless for any purpose of agriculture. That is, if the water dissipates, we can't use it. But if one were to mass there these wandering and widely dispersed rivulets again into one single channel, he would have a full and collected stream for the supplies which life demands. Channel the desire. Channel life's. He's actually equating the water, desire, and life. Just so the human mind, he says, as long as its current spreads itself in all directions, over the pleasures of the sense, it has no power that is worth the naming of making its way towards the real good, towards God. But once call it back and collect it upon itself so that it may again begin to move without scattering and wandering towards the activity which is congenital and natural to it, it will be no obstacle to mounting to higher things and in grasping higher realities. What's he describing? Channel your desire. In fact, preserve it. He goes on to explain that it rightly regulated and channeled, it will burst upward against the force of gravity. In the same way, the mind of man, enclosed in the compact channel of an habitual continence, and not having any side issues, I'm quoting, will be raised by virtue of its natural powers of motion to an exalted love. Channel the desire into this love. He says, this is the way God ordained it. That it should always move and to stop it is impossible. You can't stop the desire. That would be undesirable. But you can channel desire. Thus, to spend desire on trifles, he says, it's to introduce rivulets, it's to introduce a, a leak in the stream which would otherwise speed one toward the truth. That's what Paul describes, that we come to the truth in Christ. 
He says this does not entail setting aside sex in marriage, but it's a matter of due proportion. And so purity is not a matter of ridding oneself of desire, but of not dissipating desire in trifling streams. And Gregory seems to equate, you know, this is the psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan. I, I used to not agree with this, but I, I, in this context I, I can agree. His supreme ethic, he says, do not give way on your desire. Well understood in this light, this empowerment to remain in the right channel of life, I can agree with that. If as Gregory again says, as an inexperienced and easygoing steward, he opens too wide a channel, there will be danger in the whole stream quitting its bed and pouring itself sideways. That is, you'll lose all, all of the life-giving water. So the sexual passion, which he compares to a trifling debt of nature, need not and should not consume one in over-calculating. Rather, through long hours of prayers, he will secure the purity which is the keynote of his life. And this purity is a desire preserved and propelled by the Spirit. He's looking at Song of Solomon, but I think Romans 8 is there in the background. And the picture then is that one is bent not on sexual union alone, but on the ultimate blending by sharing in the place the Spirit holds between father and son. One more person. This is William of St. Theory. He's actually a millennium later than Gregory of Nyssa. And he's also writing on the Song of Songs. And we've lost this tradition for some reason. But he freely depicts a kind of erotic spiritual love. He quotes the song and he's thinking of his relationship to God. His left hand is under my head and his right hand shall embrace me. Psalm 2.6. This embrace extends to man, he says, but it surpasses man. For this embrace is the Holy Spirit. He is the communion, the charity, the friendship, the embrace of the Father and of the Son of God. And he himself is all things in the love of bridegroom and bride. He describes the full consummation of this desire in union with God. He says, then I say it will be the full kiss and the full embrace, the power of which is the wisdom of God, its sweetness, the Holy Spirit, and its perfection, the full fruition of the divinity, and God all in all. And so this understanding of the Trinity, I believe it leaves behind this notion of a distant, apophatic, mysterious, unapproachable God. And it lifts up the human condition as preparation and mediation for participation in the inner life of God. God is known through an empirical order inclusive of human desire. But it is desire rearranged and redirected by its inclusion in the love of God. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom 
by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.